Well, this morning, we are going to continue in the series that we have been spending some time in. I think we're probably one or two messages away from concluding. Really a series that could go in a lot of directions, and we could spend a huge amount of time in this subject because it's so important. And when, you look, when you read the Bible, this is one of those things that you can read the Bible and miss what's there because it's so obvious. Uh, we look for details sometimes, and when we're looking for details, we look right past obvious things. Obvious things like the Bible is written to the church. When you read the New Testament, it is written to the church. As a matter of fact, many folks read the Bible in a way that's inappropriate for them to read it. Actually, from cover to cover. Because the Bible is full of these rich promises from God. Who, who God's going to be to us. How He's going to reward our lives. And, you know... You can walk into a bookstore, pick up a Bible, and start reading it. But the Bible is not necessarily written to you. And some people don't realize that. Well, isn't this just the book for all of humanity? Well, in some ways it is, yes. For some of humanity, it's simply warning them and telling them about the future and what's going to be happening. For some, it's calling them into a relationship with God. But the Bible is written to the people of God. And so you see that identified. The Old Testament is written to the nation of Israel for the most part. So it's the covenant people of God that get a revelation from God. In the New Testament, it's written to the church. And <clears throat> when you and I come to this word, we can overlook some of that. We're looking for detailed information. You know, okay, how do you do marriage? How do you get happy? How do you, how do you handle your money? You know, looking for de- and we walk right past the fact that all of this is written into the context of the church. And so restoring the church becomes a critical issue because the, the Bible is making its greatest sense in connection with our lives in relation to the church. So this is why this subject is so critical. It's one that we visit uh, periodically because of that. This morning's title is Restoring Biblical Expectations. <clears throat> now think with me for a moment. What do you expect Christianity to look like? What do you expect your experience as a Christian to be like, as a believer? You know, sometimes we just find ourselves jumping on the kind of the escalator of life, and it's, it's moving at its own pace, it's going where it's going, and we're just along for the ride. So we're not, we're not cutting edge and setting the pace or creating the agenda. We're just kind of going with the flow. <clears throat> Some of that's okay. Some of that's a problem when the flow maybe isn't going at the right pace, or in the right direction. There's many churches today that are going with the flow. They need to get off. No, it's true. Um, you and I need to consider, what's Christianity supposed to look like? What am I expecting this thing to look like? If you were going to, you know, missionaries think this way, and it's important that they do. If you were going to be taking what you know of the gospel and introducing it to a group of people who, who lived on... This would be one of those new reality TV shows. You know, instead of being voted off the island, you just, you're trying to get people on the island. And you're bringing the gospel to the island. What, what's this thing supposed to look like? When you begin to impart it and share it, and it starts to take shape, do you steer it at all? Of course you would. You'd want to be looking at biblical principles and ideas and saying, what am I seeing here? What's missing? What needs to be done differently? Uh, that forms our expectations. What we expect about Christianity becomes critical for us in terms of what we're aiming at. You know, years ago, if you, you know, everybody, if you studied history very much, you know there's this period called the Dark Ages. 
And it wasn't because the solar system got messed up and the sun moved away or something. The Dark Ages was a period of time when the Bible was, was actually de-emphasized for the common man. You know, the, the light of the gospel that was in the scriptures wasn't to be read by the common everyday man. It was only to be handled by those who were, quote, qualified. And so if you grew up in that time era, you would not have been expected to have a daily reading plan of the Bible in your life. And so, therefore, you would not have pursued that. The way the church was in that era would have been, if you want to hear about God, then you need to go and hear from the priest, somebody who's qualified to speak to you. Well, today, thank, thank God, that error has been corrected in many ways, and the Bible has been restored into the laps of believers as a book that God would use, and He would open the pages for us, he would give us the Holy Spirit to teach us and lead us into the truth. We won't discover it on our own, but the Spirit of God has been given to us that you and I, the everyday common garden variety individual, if you can read, you can encounter God in this book. And there's a place for pastors and teachers in your life, but there's a place for the Holy Spirit in the Bible and you in your life as well. And so even, you know, as you're going into 2005, you know, what are you expecting by way of you encountering God in the Bible? Well, you know, I don't read the Bible a whole lot. What on earth has given you the idea that you didn't need to? Well, you know, I, I don't know, just kind of, just kind of the way I've been. Or, or I've, you know, I've met people who they kind of read sometimes. If everybody under the sun was gobbling this book up left and right, it would whet our appetite in a different way for the expectation that I ought to get in this book. I ought to be studying it. But all of our practices, our pursuits are being formed out of what do we expect to happen. Our prayer lives are being affected by what we expect. Most of us pray, and I think there's some truth in this, that this is the way it should be. Most of us pray only in the categories that we expect an answer. Which is critical as to what the Bible should inform us about. Because the Bible should open up our categories. Uh, if there's issues and things that God has said he doesn't want that, then you and I shouldn't expect an answer to prayer in that category. If I start praying about the wrong thing, motivated by the wrong thing, then I should not expect an answer. Now, most of us have been around life a little bit, so we know, don't pray for that, and we don't bother, because we don't expect there to be an answer for that. It's only when I expect there to be an answer, expect there to be an outcome, that I'm going to pursue that issue in prayer. Or, or sharing the gospel. If we had a, a firm conviction that no one will ever respond then we wouldn't prepare to share the gospel. See, what makes you prepare? You know, if you're an alpha table leader, what makes you prepare, spend all that time searching the scriptures, getting ready to lead an alpha table? Because you believe there's going to be an impact. But why do you believe that? Because you've been in this church or a church where alpha has been done and you've heard dozens of testimonies where people have shared that they've come, they've listened, and God opened their life and there was an impact from the gospel in their life. So therefore, you have reason to believe. You have reason to expect. Now, in all these categories, as we move into a new year, what are you and I expecting is going to take place in Christianity, in our midst, in the coming year? What do you expect about salvation this coming year? You expect everybody who comes to this church is going to get saved? You expect nobody's going to get saved? You expect a few will be saved? What are, you, what are you believing and expecting for the process of sanctification in your own life and in the lives around you? That, that process where God is working in us His life and working out of us the activity of sin. Are you expecting that 
this year uh, we're going to experience absolute and complete freedom from sin. Are you expecting that this is going to be an enslaving year? Sin will dominate the landscape. All these categories, the activity, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, signs and wonders. What are you expecting in the category of signs and wonders in 2005? And maybe we don't have any expectations in these areas, and that's a real problem if we don't. And maybe if right now as I'm throwing these things out, you're going, you know, I've, I've not really thought about that. Probably in 2003, we didn't really think that way about 2004. And probably in 2002, we didn't think that way about 2003. And so you just keep going back and back and back. And we don't develop any expectations in these categories because we must be biblically uninformed. When I read the Bible, there are expectations that get set before me. When I see how the church lived, now look at those snapshots of what the church used to look like. Well, then it gives me a sense of, okay, that's what I need to begin to expect that in the midst of us. So what I want to talk about today is, is restoring biblical expectations. Not just inheriting expectations from the general vicinity of what we've experienced. Well, as a church, in 2004, we experienced this, so I guess in 2005 I'm expecting this. Well, you know, that's, that's going to happen whether we want it to or not, but I need to set my expectations from here. And revisit this as I begin the plan for a new year. And adjust my expectations based on this. Now, here's a concern that I have that I think the Lord has given this message to address. When you look at biblical expectations, or just the expectation topic, one of two things I think can happen. If out of our own experience, we begin to develop our expectations about what's going to happen. Well, our own experience sometimes is pretty weak, isn't it? I mean, whether it's our battle with sin, signs and wonders, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the power of God in our midst. Sometimes what we have to offer is not a story that's all that impressive to read. And so if we draw from our own experience, then what we begin to do with our expectations is to downgrade them. You know, rather than being high that we're going to see God break out, this is going to happen. Well, I haven't seen that happen last year or the year before or recently in my life or those around me. So we begin to downgrade the gospel. So the gospel then becomes this least common denominator thing. And this is happening all over Christianity. So people now, if they can just quote John 3.16 and say at some point in their life they got saved, that's about all the sanctification expectation that is in some people's lives. Now, the flip side of this, which I'm probably I'm concerned more about in some ways is that when we stare back at these photographs, as we said, of the New Testament church, and we, we see what I believe in some ways is a bit of a highlight reel, that the Bible is highlighting certain things, drawing it out. I mean, when you read the book of Acts, there's a time span here, uh, somewhere between 15, 16 years maybe. But there's 26 chapters that you and I can read in about... An hour and a half, maybe. So there is not every event. This is, we're not watching a movie clip of everyday adventure for the Christian in the new first century church. And we're reading about all these things that took place and thousands that got saved here and all this miraculous power that broke out over here. And we begin to pursue that as we should. And we begin to pray for the sick as we should. And the sick don't get healed. We begin to see salvation. You preach messages about, you know, the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God fell and 3,000 people were saved. You come to church, there's an altar call and one person responds. Or nobody responds. 
when our experience doesn't match what's in here, the other problem that can happen is we become disillusioned. We start thinking, well, you know, I was led to believe this and this and this, but I'm not seeing it. I want to address that today because I believe what we have taught in this series and really in, in the history of what we've shared from the, from the scriptures in this church could lead some to be disillusioned, to believe, you know what, I'm not seeing what you're saying. Well, in that category, let us restore biblical expectations about not seeing what we're, what, what's being said or what we're reading in the scriptures. But let me make one more uh, introductory comment here. I started to title this message, Restoring the Sense of Biblical Proportion. Um, I use that word proportion in this sense, and I think it's important for us to recognize this. The Christian life that's being lived today, Christian knowledge that gets into our head, I think for many in the, in the body of Christ today, it lacks balance. Whether that's personally or particular churches, or denominations, or particular ministry, I think proportionally we lack balance. Not just in the sense of, I know things about the Bible, but more in the sake of emphasis. What do I major in? Me. I know all kinds of things that the Bible says. And many of us are this way. We know a lot about what the Bible says. But we tend to specialize in certain areas. We emphasize certain areas. We're drawn to certain areas. And I think there's two culprits in this. I think those who present information are to blame. I think those of us who listen to information are to blame as well. Uh, consider with me for a moment. Preachers, ministries that present ministry. I think one of the things that has caused some of this, and this is, this is very practical help for you guys today, me as well. We walk in a setting today where there's a lot of media. Your access to the gospel comes from all over the place from different arenas, different pools of thought that are generating ideas about, here's what the gospel is about, here's what God's doing. And we begin to form our ideas, our expectations, our emphasis out of those things. Now, let me just pick on a couple. I'm not picking on these to say that they're bad. Okay? I'm just picking on them as an example of being limited in what they promote. Um, ministries that tend to specialize and focus in a particular area. Usually these are radio ministries, these are national ministries, these are people who publish materials. They serve the body of Christ in certain ways because they bang on a drum that's needing to be banged on, a particular category. Now, you and I need to be wise because what we tend to do sometimes is only want to drink from that pool. We kind of get addicted to this particular ministry that bangs on the same drum over and over again. We start thinking Christianity is that drum. Now, that's one drum of many. Uh, focus on the family. That's a great emphasis. The body of Christ needs that. If, but if that's all you're drinking from, when I say drinking, oh, no, I read the Bible. No, no, no. no, but when you come to life, it's about that. And you don't seem to bubble up about other issues. That's your emphasis. Um, it's a very restricted emphasis. The Bible is about that. That's not all the Bible is about. And when ministries, day in and day out, their message is focus on the family, focus on the family, focus on the family, focus on the family. You start thinking that if I get the family thing right, I've got the gospel right. Um, you know, my wife and I have, have been, uh, in many ways, benefited, but have also observed some real weaknesses in, uh, I think, something that's growing in its impact upon the church, the home, homeschool movement. 
Uh, we homeschool our kids. We, we have benefited from insights that we've received from folks who teach in that area. But, you know, I, I, I tend to bring a thought into that arena that sometimes those who preach and teach in those areas aren't bringing. I tend to bring the thought that I'm not just a dad, I'm also a pastor. Some of these guys bring the thought that all that matters is you're a dad. And so what ends up getting, the message that ends up getting out, and I've seen this, I've attended conferences, I've read materials, and there is a, a negligence of teaching in other areas. Uh, now, that's not all to blame on the people who are presenting it. If you're drinking from that fountain, you need to be careful that you just don't drink from that fountain only. If you need to have that area of your ministry strengthened, there's some great home ideas that come out of those ministries. But they're also very restricted in their view. And they tend to neglect other areas. And they tend to give you the idea that, you know what, if my family's doing right, well then, you know, I've answered the call. I mean, as a dad, I've arrived. That's, that's what life is about for me as a father. Uh, you know, when I read the Bible, there are broader ranges of biblical expectations for my life than whether or not my children are a certain way or my home is a certain way. There's broader expectations than that. And, and you can become a little bit warped when that's the only view that you have. And, and again, I'm not against anything. Obviously, we, we receive well from folks in those categories. But I run into way too many people who are, for, for instance, in this category, in the homeschool movement, who are rather clueless about the church. They tend to, to well, you know, well, we, don't really, we don't really attend a church. We do sometimes. Um, we, you know, we do things at home. We have church at home. You know, this would be an example of you have missed the forest for the trees. You, the, the Bible's written to the church. The Bible's not written to your family. The Bible's written to your family in the context of the church. And so folks who develop the idea that, you know, let me just get into this area of life to the neglect of the church and the giftings in the church and the function of the church, teachings in other areas, the mission of the church, evangelism, reaching the world with the gospel, putting on sanctification. One of the things that I think is a great weakness about some of the family dynamics that are taught in the body of Christ is they, they teach you in some ways wisely to restrict the influence that comes into your family. Well, in other ways, though, there's a dynamic that you and I aren't called to completely restrict the influence that comes into our family. There's a place where I need you to rub me the wrong way. My kids do, too. They need to deal with sin. They don't just need to, to live in a greenhouse. Sometimes they need to have the impact that the world has sin in it. Look, look at the effect that it's bringing. It's affecting me. Look, I'm interacting with somebody. It's affecting me. So in whatever category it is, whether it's that area, whether it's a ministry that specializes and emphasizes uh, faith teachings, prosperity, every time you turn that, that radio channel on or listen to that ministry or attend that church, the message is about prosperity. The message is about faith and what can happen if you'll believe the right way and get these things in your life. And over and over and over and over again, that's what you're hearing. Well, let me say this. The Bible talks a lot about faith and the power of faith and what faith can accomplish in our lives. It does. The Bible says a lot about the blessing of God and the promises of God and the richness that we ought to pursue the reward of God in our life. It does. It says a lot about God's intent to bless us and fill our lives and be good to us. But it says a lot of other things that make that make sense along with other truth. 
I think when I think there's a disservice being done to the body of Christ today when you're in a land that overemphasizes materialism, success in a natural sense, uh, closes its eyes to spiritual realities, and the church jumps on and starts teaching in that category without any training wheels on. Here, jump on this, you know, use your faith this way. Here, jump on, ride, go. Without a sense of, you know, that message needs some balance to it. It needs input into it to form expectations correctly. You, know, you don't find Jeremiah and Isaiah in the Old Testament living at the, the great, uh, the huge day of idolatry and all the land around them, encouraging people just blindly. You know, isn't it great to, to sculpt images, guys? You know, God has given sculpting as a gift to us. We should sculpt images, Israel, at the zenith of idol worship all around them. That would be an irresponsible message. I think there would need to be some, some carefulness in how you presented that. In the land in which we live, there needs to be some great carefulness. There needs to be a balance of teaching. People need to understand the doctrine of sin. People need to understand that, you know what, my desire to be blessed can be very fleshly motivated. And there can be issues that, you know, not only does God want to bless my wallet, God wants to bless somebody other, on the other end of the world as well. God wants me to see the glory of God fill all the earth, not just me personally. And so there's all kinds of elements here where you and I develop expectations. And we need to make sure our expectations are biblical. We need to restore a sense of biblical expectations. But the other side of this, and this may be more of us, more of a concern for us, is listeners and learners are partly to blame for biblical disproportion, what we think. Over the years, I've observed, this is from Jack Deere, I've observed that the majority of what Christians believe is not derived from their own patient and careful study of scriptures. Majority of Christians believe what they believe because godly and respected teachers told them it was correct. Now, who's to blame for that? Sounds like the teachers, right? To some degree, yeah. To some degree, no. You know, we're going to teach in a narrow area today on one subject. I'm going to trust that this week you've been with God. God's been speaking to you in all kinds of areas. Of your life. God's been bringing the word of God to life in all kinds of ways to you. And when that's occurring, and you know certain things, you tend to be able to hear things in a better balance and develop more biblical expectations about them. Uh, I wrote in your outline, we tend to be compartmentalized listeners. Where, where we are listening for, one, what we already know to hear. When somebody speaks into our category, the area we've studied, we own, and a message comes, we hear that. we got ears for that message. I mean, I've heard people, you know, just through the years, you have somebody say, oh, that was the best message I've ever heard you preach on. And, you know, I know that probably 75% of that was generated out of, you spoke in my category. You talked about what I like today, and so therefore it was the best and because we've trained our ears to listen in a certain category. And that's not a bad thing. See, what the Bible says, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the church. The Spirit doesn't always say what, what your specialty is. And you need to develop ears to hear what he's saying outside of my area. Well, you know, I just don't get ministered to, I don't get fed. Well, is it because the topic's not your topic? Is it because maybe you need to develop a broader view of what really matters and what's really important in the kingdom of God? And be able to hear those things and go, yes, to that. And not just, when are you going to get around to this? Well, the second way in which we're compartmental listeners is when we're listening for where we happen to experientially be at that moment. 
Now, this is pandemic in the body of Christ because we carry our lives in such a way that it's, it's, it's indicative of a lack of faith. Rather than trusting the sovereign God who is managing our lives on a day-to-day basis, we tend to load ourselves with whatever's bothering us right now. Whatever's eating at us, it's, it's in our hands, it's in the front of our minds, and so any information that's going to come to us has to go right through that stuff. Right now, right now in this room, everybody probably walked in with something that's downloaded in the front. This is on your desktop, you know. It's right there in the front. And anything that's going to get to you, it's got to go through that. So if it happens to touch that on its way by, it's like, okay, yeah, you, you're speaking to me. Okay, come on. Bring it on. Yeah, brother, preach it. But, you know, if it happens to touch something back here, it doesn't go right through that filter. It's kind of like, no, I didn't get too much out of what was said. This is not necessarily the fault of anybody speaking or any book you're reading or any input. It's the, it's the result of you and I are limited listeners. We tend to be limited in what we're open to. Now, how does this affect the expectations that we have? Um, these, these is, this is true occurrences. I've had, we've had people through the years who, for instance, uh, either come to this church because they've left the church, they didn't like what somebody said or the way it was presented or an overemphasis in a particular area. Now, that may be true. I'm not in that church, so I don't really know what's happened there. Uh, but we've had folks leave here because people have been in this setting where they've said, you know, uh, these, these are actual occurrences. People have left because they thought we have overemphasized the ministry of the Holy Spirit in speaking in tongues. And they've left over that. Um, as I look back and I visit where we've been, I know that there have been occasions and seasons where we felt led by God to bring a biblical emphasis to those areas of ministry and those dynamics. I think if you've been with us for very long, you would have to honestly say that has not been a category that we have pounded on incessantly. Uh, if you went back and looked through the series of teachings that we've done on a Sunday morning, you know, taught through the book of Romans, we're, we're trying to finish that and we'll get back to it. Um, <laughs> before that, taught through First John, uh, have taught through a wisdom series on being a wisdom-saturated community, taught through restoration of the church, uh, taught through the mortification of sin. I mean, just been a lot of categories that we've spent a great deal of time in. And I think our emphasis tends to be in the area of sanctification. I would not say that we have overemphasized that particular category, but my, my suspicion is you come into a setting, you've been in a place where you've had a bad experience with that topic. So now you've got an aversion for that thing. So any time it gets talked about, your ears stand up with, you know, huh, here we go again. And maybe tithing's that way for some folks. Maybe you've been in a church where every Sunday the pastor labored over how, you know, I've, I've seen, I've been to services where this is the case. You know, you're in a service. It's usually, this is usually a special meeting that's called. 30 minutes is about the offering. And so there's this huge emphasis on that. Well, you sit in a church where it's that way week in and week out, and you come here, and maybe you've developed an aversion for that topic or for topics on the Holy Spirit because maybe you had a bad experience or you were made to feel like you're a second-class citizen because you don't speak in tongues. And so now, when that's mentioned, your ears go fully up and you hear that. And so, okay, you know. That's all you guys talk about. When maybe that's the second time it's been mentioned the whole year. But we have this selective hearing thing going on. And we become imbalanced and our expectations get affected. We stop expecting. We stop wanting to see God break out in that category because I, you know, I had a bad experience over here. I need to go back to biblical expectations, whether I've had bad experiences, whether I've been in a church that's emphasized something the wrong way, whether I've never seen something happen. 
I need to go here and, and draw from here biblical expectations about what the church is supposed to be and what our experience is supposed to be. Now, let me touch for a moment several examples about being disillusioned primarily. Uh, put a category heading in your outline. Living with both awesome and average. When one reads the New Testament, there's some awesome stuff happening. When we preach. We like to preach about awesome things. And we should. Because the Bible put them there for a reason. But, you know, if you read the Bible and you'll be honest when you read the Bible, the Bible speaks about a lot of average stuff, too. It's all over the place. I mean, it's, some of this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, but you're going to walk through with me several examples. The disciples experienced some pretty awesome stuff with the Lord, didn't they? I mean, get, put yourself in Peter's position when Jesus says, Peter, get out of the boat and walk on the water. Now, you and I don't sufficiently do this. We don't even imagine for a moment what this is like. If you'd like to at least toy with the idea, maybe sometime today, go home, fill up your bathtub. And stand on the edge and just contemplate the idea that, how would I feel if I put my foot in this thing and actually begin to take steps across it? Now, would you be freaked out? I mean, I would be flipping out. Like, woo, man, is this incredible. Now, what kind of expectations should Peter have as he walked away from this miraculous encounter with the Lord? Now, some of us have a theology that works this way in all the categories that we're going to mention. And I, I can be tempted to do this sometimes. I see that miracle occur, and I want to make it a pattern. That's the way Christianity ought to be all the time. So, who needs boats? If you're, if you're in Christ, walk on the water. What's wrong with you? But here we have the Apostle Peter walking on water. We have Paul traveling by boat. We have no record that the great Apostle Paul ever walked on the water. If he heard about what happened with Peter, and we know he did, should he have extrapolated that? Should he have developed some expectations that, you know what? I mean, look, this is boat travel. Boat travel in this time frame, it's not as though, you know, this is like catching uh, the bus out here, an RTA bus. Paul wants to go to another place and just catch the bus. You know, he had to find a boat. He had to find a boat he could get on that would have room for him that was going where he needed to go. He could be waiting for months for that boat to get to wherever he was in order to get where he felt like he needed to go. But why didn't he just develop a theology that if he got to get there, just walk? Wouldn't that have been a reasonable expectation? Well, apparently not. That wasn't the way to form an expectation. The disciples witnessed Jesus feed the multitudes with a few loaves and a fish. Right? They watched this occur. But yet, when we get into the New Testament and we watch the poor being cared for, and we know that they were caring for their physical needs, feeding them, we don't find this being done anywhere. We find in, in Galatians, uh, Peter and James and John are talking with Paul and interacting with Paul and Barnabas about offerings to be taken for the poor. So why didn't they just decide, look, you guys got, you got poor people there? You know what to do. Come on, what's up with y'all? Get you a few loaves and a fish and feed them. You can, I mean, just from that, you can feed a few thousand. Why are y'all having a problem? See, that's awesome, isn't it? But there's average as well. We have people here, we can't meet their need. Paul, please remember the poor. When you're out ministering, take up collections for them. Get it back here to Jerusalem that we might meet their needs. Well, that's a pretty average thing to do, isn't it? I mean, how, how much more miraculous for us just to say, you know what? Let's just pray this morning for gifts to materialize in the angel tree ministry. Just, they're just going to materialize. That'll freak them out. Uh, they'll turn to God. Come on, God. You know, 
You can develop some crazy theology. Or you can just do something average, like take the gift there yourself. And how spectacular is that? You're going to get in the car, you're going to drive across town. You're going to get out of the car, and you're going to hand somebody a gift. Well, no miracle there. Just somebody who loves somebody else. Jesus told the disciples to get money from a fish's mouth. Should they have developed a practice of doing that? I mean, a lot of us men grow up with this idea that, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a fisherman. You know, you could extract it from me, and I, and I, I expect God's going to provide for me. You know, I'll cast out, <coughs> I'll pull that fish in and I'll check all their mouths. You know, this is how God provides for his people, the mouths of fish. Now, this sounds ridiculous, but when we get into some of the more realistic categories here in a moment, you're going to see, we do that in other categories. And we become disillusioned with the body of Christ, with ministry, with miraculous events. Peter preaches to the masses in Acts chapter 2. Right? Remember this incredible event. Just a month and a half earlier, this same group of people put Jesus to death. So remember the setting here in Jerusalem. And Peter now, the Holy Spirit's come upon him. There's a boldness in Peter's life because of the Holy Spirit's work. And Peter now with the same crowd that, that he couldn't even face a little servant girl saying, you're one of them, aren't you? And he denies Jesus three times, right? Well, now he's going to stand up where all of them can hear him and he's going to say, you crucified the Lord of glory. You did it. And the whole crowd is going to be mesmerized and affected. Pretty bold of Peter, huh? Well, you know, that same Peter, who's so awesome, is quite capable of being rather average as well. Read Galatians chapter 2. Right? Matter of fact, let me look here real quick. Galatians 2. Turn there with me. Let's look at Peter being average. Right, when you, and, and, and this should be insightful for us because this great apostle Peter, his name has been passed down through history. Our names aren't in the Bible. Well, some of yours are, but not for those reasons. Verse 11 of chapter 2, Galatians. <clears throat> but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Cephas is Peter. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. You man-pleasing individual. Fear of man all over you. This is a great apostle. Peter walked on water. Preached to thousands. And here he is, he finds himself in a church setting, hanging out with the Gentiles, you know, those Gentile people. Well, there's still a little bit of this friction between the Jew-Gentile world here, even in the church. There's a little bit of discrimination, a little bit, I'm not sure they really belong, all that stuff's happening. So here comes some of the, the, the chief muckety-mucks amongst the Jews. When they show up, Peter acts like he don't know you. He's been having lunch with you all week long. Now when they come, he won't even make eye contact with you. He acts like he doesn't know you. And not just Peter, Barnabas as well. These are godly men. What do you do when godly men in your midst break out with a dose of fear of man? Let's be realistic, because there are some folks in the church today who have the idea that if you're in a role of leading a church, you're a pastor, you're an elder, you walk on water, pal. That's what I expect. You don't run from people. You don't do the wrong thing. You don't make a decision to lead your church or lead your small group or lead your sphere of ministry out of the fear of man. Come on. That's a disqualifying element. 
It's a sin issue, no question. But when you, when you bump into it, do you have biblical expectations for that person? See, if I read about Peter here, I develop an expectation that even somebody who was personally discipled by Jesus Christ himself, experienced, experienced the miraculous, saw the power of God, experienced the power of God, was used incredibly, had a commission given to him, in the right moment, can have a big yellow streak growing up his back. So, when I look at that, I know I'm not exempt from that either. And if you think your pastors or elders or people who lead you are exempt from that, you have unbiblical expectations. They're going to be yellow at some point. Some of them are yellow because of you. They're scared to death of you. <laughs> but this next example, Apollos. In Acts chapter 18, Apollos is this man who teaches eloquently. Turn over here to Acts 18 real quick. He's an eloquent teacher. And we should expect that those that God has called and gifted to teach the body of Christ, they should be. You know, we should not expect that we would sit in a meeting where somebody, by God's grace, has been given as a gift to the body of Christ to teach. Would we be sitting in that meeting week in and week out and that person doesn't impart any insight? There's no sense of inspiration. The Bible doesn't become more real to us. It doesn't touch our lives. If that's the case, broadscape, I don't mean just because we just were in another category that day and didn't hear. But overall, if that's the ministry, that's a problem. That person's not probably gifted and called to teach in that category. So Apollos ought to be an eloquent man. Look what it says here about him. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Some translations say he was mighty in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, here's a biblical expectation. Expect that those who preach and teach the word for you have room to grow in their understanding. You have a sense that, well, you know, if you're a leader, then I expect that you can answer all my questions. You know, I go to my covenant group leader and I ask them a question and they don't know. And you almost get incensed by it. Almost like, you know, what are you doing making some of these guys covenant group leaders? They don't know what to say. Well, none of them are Apollos. And he didn't know what to say either, apparently. And there were moments when he needed to be corrected. Which is true of people all over the place in the Bible. Right? Remember the passage, we see through a glass darkly. Well, do you expect that those around you will see through a glass darkly? Because they will. And it's a biblical expectation to realize, okay, I don't want to pedestal everybody. Everybody who's in a role of leadership is supposed to be perfect, walk on water, sees everything, knows and understands everything about the Bible. No. Not true. And it's a biblical expectation to see those weaknesses and expect them. Peter, Acts chapter 12. Turn there real quickly. This is an interesting little passage that's back to back in the Bible. In Acts 12, we encounter Peter's miraculous release from jail in verse 6. When Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door, were guarding the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. Remember, he gets released, 
He goes, wanders about, finds where the church is meeting. The church that's been praying has been praying for him. And so, you know, how's this for expectations? You and I pray. We get together, we pray. There's an event that takes place. Make it very real here. Some of you have been in the church long enough to remember the, the heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching episode of praying for Joel Masson. Premature baby, born at 26 weeks, 28 weeks, being told by the doctor, you need to prepare this, this family for this baby to die. And, and yet, we begin to pray. The church calls out to God. God steps in, and Joel's running around this church today. What about others that we've prayed for that way? Well, that wasn't the outcome. The church cried out to God. Clung to God. Oh, God. Believed God. And in the end, what we asked for did not occur. So we walk away from that event disillusion, don't we? And I know this was for a fact. I'm not going to get into details. You guys can fill in circumstances that are real to you in this category. But I know for a fact some folks walk through those categories almost like, I don't want to touch this prayer thing again. I don't know how to do it. Because I prayed a certain way and it didn't happen. Well, let's back up just a little bit in this story to Acts chapter 12. Right in the beginning, just before the story of Peter. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. I have no reason to believe that the church loved Peter and didn't care about James. Do you think the church prayed for James? I bet they did. Remember, we're in Acts chapter 12 here. They've been killing Christians since Acts chapter 7. The church pray for James? James? James was a mighty leader in the church. I bet you they prayed severely for James. And in one instance, a miracle occurs and Peter is let out of jail. In another instance, a man's head is cut off. Should I be disillusioned when we get together, we pray as a church, we unite, we call out to God, and what we ask for doesn't happen? That's biblical. Now, I may not understand why, and I may have a dozen questions as to why, but should I be disillusioned by that? No. No, I should not. I should be biblically informed that that happened to these guys as well, and it will happen to us. Peter raises Dorcas from the dead in Acts chapter 9. Paul raises Eudicus from the dead in Acts chapter 20. Here's two individuals that, that die and the miraculous power of God brings them back to life. Wouldn't you think that Paul would have developed a sense of, well, don't worry guys, if any of you die, we'll bring you back. That's what we expect, Right? I mean, let's, let's put yourself in that slot. If you had prayed for somebody who was dead and they came back to life, I might go visit some cemeteries the next day. <laughs> I might think, whoa, man, let's turn this baby loose. That'll get the attention of the city. I could have all kinds of great reasons as to why that ought to be what's happening. But the same Apostle Paul, 
Paul can't help Trophimus and Timothy. Look in these passages I put in your outline. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. <laughs> Paul, you can raise the dead, but one of your traveling partners in the ministry, Trophimus, is sick. And you leave him? How many of y'all think Paul didn't pray for the guy? You know, this is not like some Home Alone movie. You know, it's not like Paul went off and said, where's Trophimus? Oh, he said, I left him. He didn't just realize, oops. Oh, where's Trophimus? Oh, he was like on the verge of death, Paul. No one told you? We had to leave him. He couldn't travel. Oh, I'm certain. Paul knew he was sick. And if you're Paul, what would you do with a sick person? Pray for him, right? You've raised the dead. My goodness, the guy just is sick. The Apostle Paul must have prayed for Trophimus and yet still had to leave him there because he didn't get well and Paul needed to move on. I don't think that was an easy thing to do. I think Paul loved the people who partnered with him in ministry, but he had to leave him in somebody else's care. Timothy, his beloved son, Timothy. Paul says to him, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. What do we do in this category of healing? That's a biblical concept right there. That here is one of Paul's guys. Paul, who understood healing, taught on it in the New Testament, gave us revelation about the gifts of healing in the body of Christ. And so we form out of that, as we should, that the church should pray for those who are sick. Absolutely, we should pray for those who are sick. We should believe God is in it for us to pray for them. Elders are called upon to anoint with oil and pray. The gifts of, of prayer, I mean, pardon me, the gifts of faith and the gifts of healing are given to the church to minister to those who are sick. We should pray for the sick. But there may be a Trophimus in our midst. There may be a Timothy in our midst. So what do I do? Do I become disillusioned when we prayed and, and, and nothing happened? To too many folks, this happens. And, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that again. See, I mean, because I thought the Bible said, well, it does say that. And other things as well. So I have reason to believe biblically that, well, you know what? There's, there's an expectation here, but I'm also informed by the fact that not everybody apparently gets healed. You know, if you read through your outline, I won't take the time to do this. But you read through the outline, you find that the, the church is highlighted in the Bible. We saw it last week, I believe it was. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. The church is. This gathering of people that God has brought together. God says the church in Ephesians 3.10 is, is making known the manifold wisdom of God through the church. The church is this incredible place where God is doing incredible things. And we teach on... Everybody ought to be part of a local church. You should be gathered together. We teach you should be part of a fellowship group where you can get into a small group, relate, share your life, connect with others, open doors of ministry and avenues for Christianity that can only get expressed when relationships are intact and functioning. And we promote all those things. But you know, the Bible doesn't close its ears or its eyes to the fact that in the church is weakness and sin. But yet I have had conversations through the years of pastoring with people who got disillusioned by the fact that they bumped into people who didn't serve them a certain way, who didn't relate to them a certain way, who didn't care for them a certain way, who had sin issues in their life. And I understand where some of this comes from. I mean, you stand and listen to some of the things that we preach about sanctification, about power, 
about overcoming sin, about the mortification of sin, about putting off sin and putting on righteousness. And we, we say all those things, we develop an expectation that's up here, which we should. But right along with that, we ought to develop an expectation that's also right out of the Bible. Read the, read the book, of, uh, the letter to the Corinthians. Paul begins with commending them. You guys, wow, man, what's going on in your midst? It's incredible. You have, you have no need of any spiritual gift. You're having this outbreak of the Spirit of God. And then he proceeds from there into, you're divisive. You're carnally minded. Some of you are for this minister, some of you are for that one. You're against one another. You're taking each other to court. You're actually suing one another. I mean, there's a great deal of puzzlement here as well. But we get the richest revelation in the whole Bible about the ministry and the gifts of the Holy Spirit from the Corinthians. This is where I take exception with folks who don't read the Bible and see the local church in it. Uh, whether you're in a homeschool movement, whether you're in some idea that, you know, this extreme remnant view of the body of Christ, that, you know, there's, always, there's just this little remnant that God's doing something with. And let's just all the remnant people get together and, and remain, or whatever you do as a remnant, and just be this holy group separated from everybody else. You know, somebody read 1 Corinthians for me and find where Paul points people to the exit door. I mean, even the, my goodness, the Galatian church gets, pardon me, reamed. The Galatians church, there is heresy breaking out in this church. There's a de-emphasis on justification. And yet, when you get to Galatians chapter 3, Paul starts highlighting the fact that, that God is doing miraculous things among you. So, you know, let's put all this together. Because we stand and proclaim the truth. The church should proclaim the truth. Well, you know what? Sometimes standing in the pulpit is going to be somebody who doesn't see the truth correctly. Oh, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Well, you know, you know when we get out of here over those kind of issues? When somebody fails to proclaim the truth in your category. Oh, you can be heretical in all the categories that I don't really have much of an appetite for, but you touch on my category with some bad information and I'm out of here. Well, that's not just the speaker's fault. That's the listener's fault as well. Because we have, we have narrowed the emphasis. I think the Bible's about this. Well, no, the Bible's about a lot of things. The Bible's about the church. And when we encourage you to be a part of the church, we're encouraging you to be a part of something that you should have biblical expectations for. In January, we want everybody in this church getting into a covenant group. We want there to be no exceptions. God's called you to be a part of this church. We want you in a covenant group. We believe it's critical. We believe it's vital. Let me tell you what's going to happen after you get in this group, after you hear us say, you've got to be there. You talked about this thing like it was man. Cool, like it was from another planet. It's going to revolutionize everything about my life. And you know, when I got there, it's like, you know, the leader doesn't return my phone call. And um, there were people in the group that they were confessing sin. I had no idea people in the body of Christ acted like that. You know, that's what you start discovering. And she's so like, you know, you're going to come visit me and you say, I want my money back. I bought into this covenant group thing. I want my money back. You made me think, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, the Bible talks about fellowship that way. So I should expect great things from fellowship. I should also expect there's going to be sin in your group. That's a biblical expectation. There's going to be weakness in your group. That guy who's leading your group, he's going to, he's going to polish your apple some days and offend you in others and overlook you on other days. I should recognize that as well. That's going to happen. See, these are biblical expectations. All these are. 
Somebody's sick, we ought to expect to pray for them. We ought to expect God to heal them. But what if they don't? We should not be disillusioned. Because the Bible addresses that as well. And I should have a biblical expectation that there could be Trophimuses in our midst. There could be Timothys. There could be a James versus a Peter. All that's biblical. Matt, go ahead and come, please. So what, what do we do with, with this? Well, let me encourage us this way. The Bible offers us both awesome and average. In the book of Acts, awesome gets the headlines. Average is a bunch of the stuff that didn't get written about. And over the time span of all that took place during the book of Acts, awesome event, awesome meeting, awesome encounter, awesome truth, and all that got collected because God wanted to whet our appetite and place before us awesome so that we would aim at awesome. That's what we should aim at. But the reality is the Bible all over the place speaks of average as well. So sometimes Christianity is average. Sometimes a meeting is average. Sometimes a message is average. Sometimes a covenant group is average. Sometimes your walk is average. I don't want to be disillusioned by that. But let me, let me say this. What I don't want to do is this. I don't ever want to aim at average. If I aim at awesome, on occasions, I'll get awesome, and most of the time, I'll get average. If I ever aim at average, I may end up getting neither. I probably will lower it to where some down, somewhere down here, I'll begin to get much less than average, and I'll never achieve awesome. So let, let's, let's ask the Lord to restore to us biblical expectations. In the coming year, let us have biblical expectations. Let us set our goals high, because the Bible sets them high. Let us not be disillusioned on the days when awesome is merely average. Let's stand up together. Father, you know that critical to the future of this church, to the future of our individual lives, critical to that is what we find ourselves aiming at. What are we hoping for? What are we expecting? And Father, as we visit your word, quite often there are things there that we perhaps have overlooked, failed to see, or not looked for that would form for us expectations. Or perhaps some of us here this morning, we've not seen the miraculous at the end of our hands when we've laid our hands on someone else. And we're very tempted to form our expectations out of our experience. Lord, keep us from doing that. Because when we start aiming at average, we'll stop praying like that almost altogether. If we've pursued you over spiritual giftings and abilities that are supernatural in their nature and beyond our abilities, and we've not experienced that, Lord, keep us from being tempted to form our expectations out of our experience. Lord, let us go to your word. And let us expect 
that our experience will be this awesome picture that we see. Lord, as we are walking together as members of the body of Christ, connected to one another, ministering, serving, growing, Lord, let us let us see the richness of fellowship. Let us be provoked by it. Let us embrace the, the church with all that you've given us in the church. Relationships, giftings in other people's lives, leadership in our midst, the pillar and support of truth that is around us. But Lord, let us also embrace that walking with us are people just like us, with weaknesses with distractions, with sin, caving into the fear of man, not getting all the answers right. Lord, let us expect that as well, so that when that day comes, we may clothe ourselves with humility and not back away from the body of Christ and not back away from fellowship or back away from relating. But Lord, let us be biblically informed in that day that, that we knew that would be happening as well. We knew that our lives would be radically affected and we knew that there'd be days when it just feels average. Because that's in your word also. So Lord, raise our expectations to biblical ones. Lord, you have designed our lives so that we need the awesome and we also need the average. We need the person who always seems to do the right thing at the right time in our lives, but we also need the person who seems to do the wrong thing as well. We need them both and you have placed them in our lives. Lord, inform us biblically that we might expect in the coming year all that this word provokes us to expect. And you may be glorified in our lives and in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.